This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording by Stephen Anderson of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 11 The Yankee in Search of Adventures There never was such a country for wandering liars, and they were of both sexes. Hardly a month went by without one of these tramps arriving, and generally loaded with a tale about some princess or other wanting help to get her out of some far-away castle where she was held in captivity by a lawless scoundrel, usually a giant. Now you would think that the first thing the king would do after listening to such a novelette from an entire stranger would be to ask for credentials, yes, and a pointer or two as to the locality of castle, best route to it, and so on. But nobody ever thought of so simple and common sense a thing at that. No, no, everybody swallowed these people's lies whole, and never asked a question of any sort or about anything. Well, one day when I was not around, one of these people came along. It was a she one this time and told a tale of the usual pattern. Her mistress was a captive in a vast and gloomy castle, along with forty-four other young and beautiful girls, pretty much all of them princesses. They had been languishing in that cruel captivity for twenty-six years. The masters of the castle were three stupendous brothers, each with four arms and one eye, the eye in the center of the forehead, and as big as a fruit, sort of fruit not mentioned, their usual slovenliness in statistics. Would you believe it? The king and the whole round table were in raptures over this preposterous opportunity for adventure. Every night at the table jumped for the chance, and begged for it. But to their vexation and chagrin, the king conferred it upon me who had not asked for it at all. By an effort, I contained my joy when Clarence brought me the news. But he, he could not contain his. His mouth gushed delight and gratitude in a steady discharge, delight in my good fortune, gratitude to the king for his splendid mark of his favor for me. He could keep neither his legs nor his body still, but pirouetted about the place in an airy ecstasy of happiness. On my side I could have cursed the kindness that conferred upon me this benefaction, but I kept my vexation under the surface for policy's sake, and did what I could to let on to be glad. Indeed, I said I was glad. And in a way it was true I was as glad as a person is when he is scalped. Well, one must make the best of things, and not waste time with useless fretting, but get down to business and see what can be done. In all lies there is wheat among the chaff, and I must get at the wheat in this case. So I sent for the girl, and she came. She was a comely enough creature, and soft and modest, but 
If signs went for anything, she didn't know as much as a lady's watch. I said, My dear, have you been questioned as to particulars? She said she hadn't. Well, I didn't expect you had, but I thought I would ask to make sure. It's the way I've been raised. Now you mustn't take it unkindly if I remind you that, as we don't know you, we must go a little slow. You may be all right, of course, and we'll hope that you are, but to take it for granted isn't business. You understand that. I'm obliged to ask you a few questions. Just answer up fair and square and don't be afraid. Where do you live when you are at home? In the land of Motor, fair sir. Land of Motor. I don't remember hearing of it before. Parents living. As to that, I know not if they be yet on live, sith it is many years that I have been lain shut up in the castle. Your name, please. I hight the Demoiselle Alessandi La Cartolaise, an it please you. Do you know anybody here who can identify you? That were not likely, fair lord, I being come hither now for the first time. Have you brought any letters, any documents, any proofs that you are trustworthy and truthful? Of a surety, no. And wherefore should I? Have I not a tongue, and cannot I say all that myself? But you're saying it, you know, and somebody else's saying it is different. Different? How might that be? I fear me, I do not understand. Don't understand? Land of... Why, you see... You see... Why... Ugh, great Scott! Can't you understand a little thing like that? Can't you understand the difference between your... Why do you look so innocent and idiotic? I? In truth, I know not, but... And it were the will of God? Yes, yes, I, I reckon that's about the size of it. Don't mind my seeming excited, I'm not. Let us change the subject. Now as to this castle, with forty-five princesses in it, and three ogres at the head of it, tell me, where is this harem? Harem? The castle? You understand? Where is the castle? Oh, as to that, it is great and strong and well beseen and lieth in a far country. Yes, it is many leagues. How many? Ah, fair sir, it were woundedly hard to tell they are so many, and do so lap one upon the other, and being made all in the same image, and tincted with the same color, one may not know the one league from its fellow, nor how to count them, except they be taken apart, and ye wit well it were God's work to do that, being not within man's capacity. For ye will note, hold on, hold on, never mind about the distance. Whereabouts does the castle lie? What's the direction from here?
Ah, please you, sir, it hath no direction from here, by reason that the road lieth not straight, but turneth evermore, wherefore the direction of its place abideth not, but is sometime under the one sky, and anon under another. Whereso if ye be mindeth that it is in the west, and windeth thitherward, ye shall observe that the way of the road doth yet again turn upon itself by the space of a half-circle, and this marvel happening again and yet again and still again. It will grieve you that you had thought by vanities of mind to thwart and bring to naught the will of him that giveth not a castle a direction from a place except it pleaseth him. And if it please him not, will the rather that even all castles and all directions thereunto vanish out of the earth, leaving the places wherein they tarry desolate and vacant, so warning his creatures that where he will, he will, and where he will not, he... Oh, that's all right, that's all right. Give us a rest. Never mind about the direction. Hang the direction. I beg pardon. I beg a thousand pardons. I am not well today. Pay no attention when I soliloquize. It is an old habit, an old bad habit, and hard to get rid of when one's digestion is all disordered with eating food that was raised forever and ever before he was born. Good land! A man can't keep his functions regular on spring chickens thirteen hundred years old. But come, never mind about that. Let's... Have you got such a thing as a map of that region about you? Now a good map... Is it peradventure that manner of thing which of the late unbelievers have brought from over the great seas, which, being boiled in oil and an onion and salt added thereto, doth... What? A map? What are you talking about? Don't you know what a map is? There, there. Never mind. Don't explain. I hate explanations, for they fog a thing up so you can't tell anything about it. Run along, dear. Good day. Show her the way, Clarence. Oh, well. It was reasonably plain now why these donkeys didn't prospect these liars for details. It may be that this girl had a fact in her somewhere, but I don't believe you could have sluiced it out with a hydraulic, nor got it with the earlier forms of blasting, even. It was a case for dynamite. When she was a perfect ass, and yet the king and the knights had listened to her as if she had been a leaf out of the gospel. It kind of sizes up the whole party. And think of the simple ways of this court. This wandering wench hadn't any more trouble to get access to the king in his palace than she would have had to get into the poorhouse in my day and country. In fact, he was glad to see her, glad to hear her tale. With that adventure of hers to offer, she was as welcome as a corpse is to a coroner. Just as I was ending up these reflections, Clarence came back. I remarked upon the barren result of my efforts with the girl, hadn't got hold of a single point that could help me find the castle. 
The youth looked a little surprised, or puzzled, or something, and imitated that he had been wondering to himself what I had wanted to ask the girl all those questions for. "'Why, great guns!' I said. "'Don't I want to find the castle? And how else would I go about it?' <laughs> "'Sweet, your worship, one may lightly answer that, I ween. "'She will go with thee. They always do. She will ride with thee.' Ride with me? Nonsense. But of a truth she will. She will ride with thee. Thou shalt see. What? She browse around the hills and scour the woods with me? Alone? And I as good as engaged to be married? Why, it's scandalous. Think how it would look. My, the dear face that rose before me. The boy was eager to know all about this tender matter. I swore him to secrecy, and then whispered her name. Puss Flanagan. He looked disappointed, and said he didn't remember the countess. How natural it was for the little courtier to give her a rank. He asked me where she lived. In East Har... I came to myself and stopped, a little confused, and then I said, Never mind now, I'll tell you sometime. And might he see her? Would I let him see her some day? It was but a little thing to promise, thirteen hundred years or so, and he so eager, so I said, yes. But I sighed. I couldn't help it. And yet there was no sense in sighing, for she wasn't born yet. But that's the way we are made. We don't reason where we feel. We just feel. My expedition was all the talk that day and night, and the boys were very good to me and made much of me and seemed to have forgotten their vexation and disappointment and come to be as anxious for me to hive those ogres and set those ripe old virgins loose as if it were themselves that had the contract. Well, they were good children, but just children, that is all. And they gave me no end of points about how to scout for giants, and how to scoop them in, and then they told me all sorts of charms against enchantments, and gave me salves and other rubbish to put on my wounds. But it never occurred to one of them to reflect that if I was such a wonderful necromancer as I was pretending to be, I ought not to need salves or instructions or charms against enchantments, and least of all arms and armor on a foray of any kind, even against fire-spouting dragons and devils hot from perdition, let alone such poor adversaries as these I was after, these commonplace ogres of the back settlements. I was to have an early breakfast and start at dawn, for that was the usual way. But I had the demon's own time with my armor, and this delayed me a little. It is troublesome to get into, and there is so much detail. First you wrap a layer or two of blanket around your body for a sort of cushion and to keep off the cold iron. Then you put on your sleeves and shirt of chain mail. These are made of small steel links woven together, and they form a fabric so flexible that if you toss your shirt onto the floor it slumps into a pile like a peck of wet fish net. It is very heavy, and is 
nearly the uncomfortablest material in the world for a nightshirt, yet plenty used it for that. Tax collectors and reformers and one-horse kings with a defective title, and those sorts of people. Then you put on your shoes, flat boats roofed over with interleaving bands of steel, and screw your clumsy spurs into the heels. Next you buckle your greaves on your legs and your curses on your thighs, then come your back plate and your breastplate, and you begin to feel crowded. Then you hitch onto the breastplate the half-petticoat of broad, overlapping bands of steel which hangs down in front but is scalloped out behind you so you can sit down, and isn't any real improvement on an inverted coal scuttle, either for looks or for wear, or to wipe your hands on, for that matter. Next you belt on your sword, then you put your stovepipe joints onto your arms, your iron gauntlets onto your hands, your iron rat trap onto your head with a rag of steel web hitched into it to hang over the back of your neck, and there you are, snug as a candle in a candle mold. This is no time to dance. Well, a man that is packed away like that is a nut that isn't worth the cracking. There's so little of the meat when you get down to it, by comparison with the shell. The boys helped me, or I never could have got in. Just as we finished, Sir Belvedere happened in, and I saw that, as like as not, I hadn't chosen the most convenient outfit for a long trip. How stately he looked, and tall and broad and grand. He had on his head a conical steel cask that only came down to his ears, and for a visor only a narrow steel bar that extended down to his upper lip and protected his nose. And all the rest of him, from neck to heel, was flexible chain mail, trousers and all. But pretty much all of him was hidden under his outside garment, which of course was of chain mail, as I said, and hung straight from his shoulders to his ankles, and from his middle to the bottom, and both before and behind was divided, so that he could ride and let the skirts hang down on each side. He was going grailing, and it was just the outfit for it, too. I would have given a good deal for that ulster, but it was too late now to be fooling around. The sun was just up, the king and the court were all on hand to see me off and wish me luck, so it wouldn't be etiquette for me to tarry. You don't get on your horse yourself. No, if you tried it, you would get disappointed. They carry you out, just as they carry a sunstruck man to the drug store, and put you on, and help you get your rights, and fix your feet in the stirrups, and all the while you do feel so strange and stuffy and like somebody else, like somebody that has been married on a sudden, or struck by lightning, or something like that, and hasn't quite fetched around yet, and is sort of numb and can't just get his bearings. Then they stood up the mast they called a spear in its socket by my left foot, and I gripped it with my hand. Lastly, they hung my shield around my neck, and I was all complete and ready to up-anchor and get to sea. Everybody was as good to me as they could be, and a maid of honor gave me the stirrup cup her own self. There was nothing more to do now but for that damsel to get up behind me on a pillion, which she did, and put an arm or so around me to hold on. And so we started, 
and everybody gave us a good-bye and waved their handkerchiefs or helmets, and everybody we met going down the hill and through the village was respectful to us, except some shabby little boys on the outskirts. They said, Oh, what a guy! and hove clods at us. In my experience, boys are the same in all ages. They don't respect anything. They don't care for anything or anybody. They say, Go up, bald head, to the prophet, going his unoffending way in the gray of antiquity. They sass me in the holy gloom of the Middle Ages, and I had seen them act the same way in Buchanan's administration. I remember because I was there, and helped. The prophet had his bears and settled with his boys, and I wanted to get down and settle with mine, but it wouldn't answer because I couldn't have gotten up again. I hate a country without a derrick. End chapter 11